Hello, babe. Hey, babe. Thank you for being here this week. Scott isn't able to join us this week. We're going to get into that here in a little bit. But as I like to do, I like to begin with gratitude. So thanks to you for stepping in as guest co-host this week. Yeah. I would also like to thank our partners, Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them at schubert.org and more on some of their upcoming programming in a bit. Also, a huge thanks to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on them at salastina.org and more on some of their upcoming programs programming here in a bit. But I do want to send all of my prayers and all of my warm energy to my co-host Scott Blankenship this week. Mm -hmm. He is dealing with a uh, a loss, a loss in the family, a loss of a of a friend and and someone radar who we have all grown to love. My relationship dealt with pets has been relatively peripheral over the course of my life. My late ex, you know, his cat, Montgomery, died in his early 20s, which of course was, mm-hmm. you know, very difficult for him, ha- you know, having a pet for that long, you know, is, is certainly oh, yeah. very challenging. Um, I don't think I actually talked about it on uh, Triloquy, but we lost Grover not too long ago. Yeah. And now we're uh, dealing with uh, the loss of Radar. Scott is most directly. I wonder if you can speak to... Uh, you know, your experience losing Grover and maybe how that has given you a broadened sense of empathy or a broadened sense of gratitude or, or something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, losing a pet is losing a family member um, for sure. And losing Grover was, uh, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't anywhere near ready for it. You know, it came super, super quick and uh, was, wasn't as difficult to deal with. It's, it's barely been a month at this point, but Honestly, the experience of, um, I don't know, just seeing the way that he handled himself in a certain sense uh, really blessed me towards the end. You know, when when cats get sick, they they tend to hide, um, and he he didn't, um, and I noted that for sure. Um, I, I've been given an opportunity to see the preciousness of life, you know, and we're given that opportunity in all of our relationships, um, and so I just, uh, you know, I use... Grover's memory as as a way of reminding myself of of not just you know the time that we had together but the time that I have with the folks that are that are still here you know um, friends and loved ones um, pets and family members for sure. So what about radar? What was the mm. impact that radar had on oh, your radar. life? Radar, radar was such a good boy. Radar was such a good boy. He was one of the friendliest dogs um, that I've ever met. Uh, so I don't know unassuming, I guess. I don't know if I can call a dog unassuming, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but but he very much was. Um, he he always loved coming over here and getting his treats and candy. I always loved seeing him. So happy to see us. Yes. My, my dog, I don't, we don't have a dog here. My dog grocery <laughs> bill was <laughs> considerable, but we loved Radar so much. Yeah. You know, I, uh, as I mentioned, you know, my relationship with pets has always been peripheral, but I think Radar, I I shouldn't say think, I know that Radar taught me dog, taught taught me how to uh, engage that communication. You know, hanging out with Radar so much 
has informed the way uh, that I engage uh, Max. See, th- this week, uh, Cesar Chavetta is on the podcast. His dog, Max, is is someone who I feel like I can engage a little, engage a little bit more because Radar taught me, you know, what a tail wag means and, you know, <laughs> how to tell a dog to sit or what it means when a dog needs to go outside, you know, yeah. not too long ago, less than a month ago, really in conjunction with Grover's transition. We even have the honor to dog sit for about a week yeah. when Scott was out of town visiting family down in Arizona. So I'm I'm just so incredibly grateful to uh, have gotten to know Radar, yeah. um, you know, being here with you when we lost Grover, I know for sure uh, expanded my levels of empathy. So we're continuing to uh, just offer Scott all of our mm-hmm. warm thoughts. If you're able to reach out to him, to tag him on social media, just, you know, wish him well, offer him some encouraging words, and hopefully he'll be back yeah. next week to to thank yeah. each and every one of you for that. It was so obvious. The the depth of the the relationship that they had, the dependency on one another in a certain sense. It was it was beautiful. Um we're we're with you, Scott. We're we'll always be remembering radar and he's always with you. Something that I really always like to uh affirm when people are going through hard times is that there's a lot of beauty that's born from life's challenges, a lot of opportunity that's born from life's challenges. That's, of course, affirmed through our practice of Nietzsche and Buddhism, this idea mm-hmm. of you know a, a lotus growing from a muddy swamp, but being unimpacted by the muddy swamp, but at the same time needing that muddy swamp to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, it really gets deep if you want to go down that path. Yeah. You know, but that idea is also affirmed musically uh, for me most profoundly through the tradition of Negro spirituals. Uh, I already mentioned that Caesar is going to come in in the third movement, and there were so many pieces of music. Uh, that he wanted to share and and talk about. I thought that we would highlight uh, a couple of them uh, here in the intro just to make that point and, of course, as a way to continue our celebration here of Black History Month. Before I play a little bit of this, I wonder if you had any engagement at all with the spiritual as a thing. A lot of people engage the spiritual through church, certainly through black church, where where tunes like, I don't know, wade in the water and follow the drinking gourd, part of your upbringing, part of your Christian upbringing. A little bit, actually. Yeah. That's something that I uh, found interesting when I gained you know, some perspective and context for some of those, uh, some of those songs that we, that we sang growing up. They, I mean, they were, you know, in the, they were in the choir book. Um, Wade in the water was a, a bit ubiquitous. I was very mm, familiar oh, wow. with it, honestly. But it, like I said, it it wasn't a conversation as to where this music came from, other than this is church music for church people, you know. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect for people to know. I think step one is people who are not black knowing the music exists. Right. But step number two is really understanding why the music mm-hmm. exists anyway. Um, among the many really incredibly beautiful spirituals out there is one called Deep River. And Caesar hand-selected this performance of Deep River featuring the late, great Jesse Norman. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Thank you. 
of course, talking about the desire to go somewhere better, to even feel something better. What do you feel when you hear Jesse sing that song? I'm beauty. <laughs> I don't know how to put that into words, honestly. The the feeling that I feel when I when I listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Here's another one. This is uh, a tune, a spiritual uh, called There's a Balm in Gilead. And this is a particularly beautiful rendition of it. It features the ensemble Chanticleer with the singer Cortez Mitchell. And I'm going to, you know, give a little bit of a spoiler here. Cortez has the ability to sing in this tessitura, in this range that is so different, so unexpected, but so incredibly beautiful. Here's a little bit of this. Mm. think about there is a balm in Gilead, I sort of think about the idea of healing, you know, the fact that not all medicines are physical. Some pain really requires some spiritual medicines. I, you know, I, I know you're all about mm. the, the medicines, you know, <laughs> but what I wanted to ask you regarding this recording specifically has to do what I was just saying, the fact that Cortez is able to sing in, in such this beautiful high range. As someone with a lighter tone to his voice, <laughs> someone who is often mistaken for another gender <laughs> on often, the phone, I, I wonder what your reactions are to the highlighting and the platforming of that musically. You know, it's, it's easy to talk about the ways that uh, othering and subjugation and bullying and all those sorts of things may be pulled uh, from from that. But I think there's mm -hmm. something beautiful only, you know, within highlighting a voice like that coming out of a male body, a male presenting body. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, honestly, my response is you better sing, girl. <laughs> he sounded great yeah yeah and there's one more that i wanted to uh, share this one didn't come from uh caesar but this is one of my all-time favorites and actually i learned about this recording uh from scott he bought me a vinyl uh called let my people go black spirituals and african drums as performed by the howard roberts chorale uh featuring jonas guangua this is a spiritual uh their take on one called talk about a child that do love jesus Oh, 
When I hear that tune talk about a child that do love Jesus, I think about the idea of in a world of hate, there is love and there are people who know how to center love. Now, of course, as a former man of the cloth, as someone who went to school to be a preacher, you know, you even have a degree in Bible. Oh, a whole degree. I wonder if you can speak to the ability, maybe even from your perspective, the necessity to take these spirituals outside of the context of Christianity and apply them more broadly. That's the tool that the mm. that the enslaved African people had down south and across the yeah. country that that idea of spirituality the uh, the the approximation of the Hebrew story of the Exodus you mm -hmm. know with black Exodus I wonder if you've spent much time thinking about that taking this music outside of a strictly Christian context Yeah I think it makes a lot of sense I mean you know me I tend to think that everything is contextual when it comes down to it. Uh, definitions, understandings, approaches uh, depend on people's experiences and perspectives, right? Um, and so I guess I, I think about that in that way too. It, music, is, music is medicine. Uh, you know, talking about medicines, music is medicine first and foremost for, for me. And it makes complete sense to me, regardless of even what the like background of those stories are or or how they end up being used by by some folks um doesn't really matter when what 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 is the experience that a person a community has making that music together and and in healing with and and from that yeah absolutely so when i again when i hear that tune talk about a child that do love jesus i affirm all of the people still to this day who really see that in that strict religious context. But for me, I see it much broader. And I and I mm -hmm. wanted to close with that one again, thinking about Scott, thinking about Radar. Talk about a man that do love his dog, that did mm -hmm. love his dog, that spent money on surgeries and teeth cleaning, didn't go nowhere without him. You know, when we moved into our uh, current space and, and into our current home, I wanted to make sure that it was a space where Radar could be welcome because mm -hmm. he is a part of or was a part of, of who Scott is. It's going to, it's, it's feeling funny talking about Radar in the past tense because we've known yeah. him since we moved to Minnesota in, in 2018. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I felt like he was a part of our extended family too. All yeah. of that to say that I am so appreciative of the opportunity, of the enlightenment, of the Buddhahood that I was able to experience through not only knowing Radar, but experiencing the love of man and dog, this idea of man's best friend and how that really manifested when it came to Scott. So again, mm -hmm. all of our thoughts and prayers to Scott. Hope to uh, have him back next week for him to you know, offer some of his own words. Hug your furry friends a little tighter today mm -hmm. if you have them. If you don't have furry friends, find some peace and some rest this week because that's something that you know our our friends our pets can also provide to us find someone mm -hmm. to offer some love to because you're here today gone today in the in the case of Grover and also in the case of Radar it came very unexpected that can that can happen to any of us and we have to show that mm -hmm. gratitude and that love now take a minute really to understand the power of love the power of empathy and ultimately the power of understanding different 
perspectives. I didn't have the perspective of a pet owner, but taking the time to grow that empathy and the intentionality for me to understand that different perspective has made my life bigger and made my life broader. That's what I'm moving closer and closer to working towards anyway in every aspect of my day, my career, my life. And I want to spread that here on this show, the benefit of experiencing something bigger through deeper understanding of who's different, of what's different, all the way down into the world of music. Let's go ahead and get started. And this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in to returning listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for your continued support, contributions, and listenership. Thank you so much. We are so indebted to you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the concept of classical music and applies it to something much broader and much deeper. We take pieces of music, we take stories from the news, conversations, and almost anything that you can think about, and we approximate it to classical music all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to learn a little bit more about the folks who make it possible to check out past opuses and to donate, go to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on February 14th, Valentine's Day, they are featuring Accordo with Silent Film, Join Schubert Club at the Ordway for an evening with acclaimed string collective Accordo, the BRIJ Quartet, and pianist and composer Stephen Pretzman featuring silent movies with original live music. More information on that at schubert.org. Also, once again, huge thanks to our friends over at Salestina. Coming up on March 24th and 25th, Salestina is featuring a resident artist showcase. Uh, It says here, when your resident artists are this good, you owe it to everyone to shine a giant spotlight on them once in a while and a reception will follow. So uh, it'll feature Meredith and Yoshi. Uh, You can check it out if you're over in the area on March 24th at eight o'clock at the Eddy at the Broad Stage and on March 25th at 8 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, The show is going down at Barrett Hall at the Pasadena Conservatory of Music and will also be live streamed. So if you're not over in Southern California, you can enjoy it as well. Uh, Get your tickets and support over at salestina.org. I also want to send another uh, huge thanks to uh, everyone at the Gateways Music Festival and all the radio stations that have taken on Gateways Radio. Very excited to expose more and more people to the uh, brilliance of Black classical music as realized by the Gateways Festival Orchestra and its musicians. Uh, Cesar Civetta is joining me in the third movement this week. Very excited to feature that conversation. Uh, Del and I will be celebrating a couple different shades of hip hop, very, very different uh, perspectives on it, but uh, a hip hop celebratory second movement. We're going to get into the Oracle theory in the final movement. That's how I'm beginning to think about the way I'm thinking about all of all of the, my crazy ways of uh, and engaging this thing called classical music, the Oracle theory. More on that here in a bit, but for now, We will jump into movement one. 
All right, Dell. So we had the Grammys earlier oh, the Grammys. this week. What do you think? Because when I got home, uh, I, I took a quick trip over to Southern California. When I got home, you know, y'all were, uh, you and Jess, shout out to Jess, were downstairs playing video games. So obviously the Grammys just aren't the most important thing to you. <laughs> but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I've always appreciated the Grammys. Uh, I've been a music lover my whole life. And, you know, there, it's a platform for performance, for checking out like all sorts of people in in quote unquote, the industry, um, and all sorts of different genres, uh, artists doing incredible work, which I love. Um, and so it, it's given me that for sure, but I also see the problems that a lot of people have with it. Um, recognizing that, you know, in my mind, it's problematic to even create competition out of art. Like sure. how do you, how do you objectify something that is inherently subjective? Um, so that's difficult. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate it. My my push and pull comes at least recently comes from the fact that I know folks there now. Like there there are people right. there, are even people who have been on the Triloquy podcast at this point who have been uh, nominated, and I think in a couple of cases actually won Grammys. As you continue, you know, and you're on your arts administration journey and meet more of these artists, I'm sure that there are folks who you are really cheer on you oh, know absolutely if, if, if paviel or queen oh, drea for sure. or, or a lot of our local faves you know for were sure. ever nominated for grammys we would we would be cheering them on absolutely and i'm always going to support art and artists um however you know whatever form that takes practically speaking so nothing uh nothing against even what they're trying to do as an institution i suppose sure sure <laughs> well for, for me at the end of the day you know I always find myself being really happy when I see people realizing their happiness through, you know, the, this this sort of recognition and and that sort of honor. But there are many cases in which that gratitude just does not apply to me, <laughs> or I have to recontextualize it in a different way. We were all there. Let's just get straight to it. We were all there to celebrate Beyonce. Period. C CBS even announced that, you know, when Beyonce made it to the Grammys, uh, you know, because I think her and Jay-Z were a little late. When the announcement came through that Beyonce had finally made it, the viewership spiked 70% or, 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 or something phenomenal well, like that. That something. 70%. <laughs> um, so, of course, we were waiting for Beyonce to win the big award album of the year, but she didn't. Now, mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to say, you know, and, and I'm hesitating because it's difficult for me to not have a little bit of an attitude, but this is me being reasonable. This is me evolving. I'm sure that there were millions of people who bought and streamed and celebrated Harry Styles' album, the sure. album that won album of the year. Absolutely. I'm just saying I never heard it. <laughs> I never heard of it. I, I hate, well, I heard of it, but I, I didn't really listen <laughs> other than the singles, honestly, um, personally, I've, I've never really, I don't know for years now, I don't, I have found myself disagreeing with the, um, uh, best album of, of the year, uh, category, uh, personally. Say more about that. I, I just, there've been a lot of, a lot of moments and maybe it's a matter of, you know, bias and, you know, my personal taste just like jumping out, but there have been a lot of moments where I feel like there's been what I've. If, if you could begin to objectify it, showing what is like objectively either uh, maybe something that uh, a project that is contributing to the conversation, people are engaging yeah, with it a culture, bit more like, right? yeah, yeah, the culture as opposed to just like compositionally, what is the what is the project? I, I found myself disagreeing with with what the voters have said. Um, when I see an album yeah. like this, like Harry Styles's album, win album of the year. 
I think about this concept of broad audience. We Scott and I talk ab- about this a lot on uh, here on Triloquy. This idea that when we talk about broad appeal and broad audiences, at the end of the day, we're talking about white people yeah. and and typically young white people mm-hmm. who are out uh, buying the tickets and the t-shirts and the merch and and all of that stuff. So. It's even hard for me to take away a racial aspect from the category because historically there have been so few people to actually win that particular award, album of the year. As a matter of fact, there have only been 11 artists in the history of the Grammys to win album of the year. We're going to go down this list, but just to make sure I'm I'm not crazy right now. You mean 11 black artists. Right. Considering the impact that black people and black culture have had on the globe when it comes to music, much mm-hmm. less America, much less the United States. Right. Do you not see a disparity between that and only 11 black artists winning album of the year in the history of the Grammys? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in a certain, in a certain sense, it makes sense that that is the product and an uh, ecosystem driven by dollars. Um, and and the power that exists in white America to make that happen, right? Mm-mm. See, Dell saying it, not me. But anyway, let's go through <laughs> this list. I feel like we did this last year, but um, we're, we're going to do it again this year because I think it's very important to note. So starting from the beginning, the 11 Black artists to have won Album of the Year, Stevie Wonder, of course, Stevie is deserving, you know, one of the great composers of, of history. Michael Jackson won in uh, 1984 for Thriller, of course, you know, that that has mm. to be on the list. In 1985, Lionel Richie won Album of the Year for Can't Slow Down, followed by Quincy Jones in 1991 for Back on the Block. Mm. In 1992, Natalie Cole took away the award for Unforgettable with Love. Uh, in 1994, we have the one and only Whitney Houston uh, for the soundtrack of the Bodyguard winning Album of the the year. Mm. Huge history was made in 1999 when Lauren Hill won album of yes. the year for the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Well and deserved. really, it, it's hard for me not to almost get choked up about it because I think about how significant it was not only for a black woman to win that award, but for a hip hop album to win that award. Mm-hmm. That's something that they still struggle with to this day. In 2004, Outkast took it away for Speaker Box, The Love Below, the double album. Ray Charles uh, won album of the year in 2005 for Genius Loves Company, 2008, uh, belonged to Herbie Hancock, one of our Buddha brothers, mm-hmm. taking uh, Album of the Year home. And then last year, in 2022, John Batiste became the 11th with his album, We Are. So we're talking about monumental figures. No one will ever denounce or deny how deserving those artists were. Mm. My question is, do you think Beyonce deserves a place among them, among Ray Charles, Whitney Houston, Lauren Hill. Why does Beyonce deserve a spot <laughs> among those people? Uh, I mean, I feel like I could say because Beyonce and just be Period. done and, with and it. And just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> but like, even if we want to like get down to the specificity of the project, right? Album of the year, Renaissance deserves that from yeah. my perspective. Renaissance is like earth shattering for me and for so many people. I I don't know, like, I feel like there's this resurgence to, you know, this dance aesthetic that yep. has uh, been foundational in the queer community for a long time. And this album being, in essence, a bit of a love letter to queer folk, to black queer folk specifically, is is enormous. I 
I mean, and that's just to talk about like the spirit of the of the music, but the actual like composition itself, the way it flows from start to finish, every track is is a respin, every single one. I just I don't understand why it didn't win. So shout out to Harry Styles, all due respect. Yeah. And I'm gonna let you finish, but Beyonce had the best album of 2022. <laughs> Another bit of news that I thought was pretty interesting from the Grammys this year is that Beyonce officially became the most Grammy-winning artist of Mm. of all time. She toppled someone from the so-called classical world, Sir George Schulte. Be honest. What do you think it says about music in general? I guess at least the music industry that he held that top spot as most Grammy wins for so long. Mm. We we can't say that orchestral music leads the charts or has has fueled popular culture right. or just world culture in general for right. the past decades to an extent. What what does it say to you that he held that position for so long? You remember what I said about white power a minute ago? Mm. Like that's that's the reality. I, I don't understand why else. I mean it's a matter of who's on the the committee that's running those votes, right? And and where what their positionality is in relationship to that music. So what from my from my perspective. So what does it say to you now that despite white power structures, despite everything that went into that reality of Schulte being the top Grammy winner, what does it say now that Lolo Beyonce has managed to win even more Grammys? Is that a sign of progress to you? A sign of a shift in the ecosystem? What do you what do you take away from this sort of history being made? Mm, That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer for that uh, until we see something else change or a more sustained change over time. Um, Because really, this is a matter of something that happened cumulatively, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, So I I don't know if it necessarily relates to something that, that someone is specifically doing or trying to do, but it definitely relates to a shift in what broader culture means as far as the way for black musicians ability to push those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. For me, one of the big things that it says is that the respectability politics surrounding classical music are beginning to fall down. I think it was very easy for a long time for people to say, well, ultimately classical music is X, Y, and Z, or ultimately orchestral music is X, Y, Mm -hmm. and Z. But now we see something different. In addition to that, you know, here on Triloquy, again, we're always talking about decolonizing the phrase classical music. I think when we have especially folks like John Batiste, you know, making history win an album of the year last year and Beyonce being the most uh, decorated uh, Grammy person in, in history, I think we'll have to be forced to rethink about the way that we use that fl- phrase because the most classic music of our generation, the most classic music of the 20th century and the 21st century and the way that history is being written around it is shifting. And I think that we'll have no choice mm-hmm. but to either face the white supremacy around our use of the phrase classical music in the way that we always has, that that's option one or option two is to switch that up and to really consider more music equally venerable, equally classical in the world of classical musics. This is just what it looks like and feels like over here in the United States. Our mm-hmm. classics are different than what Schulte centered. Our classics are different than what is classic in India and Asia and South America and Africa mm-hmm. and all sorts of places for us. 
It is this. And I think that we're moving in that direction with this type of history being made. Maybe I'm stretching, but, you know, maybe maybe times are changing. I mean, you know, any uh, what do they say? Like uh, leading uh, versus. Oh, I can't remember the oh, leading versus lagging indicators. That's what it is. Yeah. What yeah. is that leading versus lagging indicators? Um, you know what your measurements for uh, success or lack of success in a certain scenario. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe we're seeing a bit of that. Other notables from the Grammys. I do. I do want to shout out Kendrick Lamar for winning Best Rap Album. I mean, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. What can we say? I mean, we've we've we've, we've talked about that sim- similar uh, uh, relatively recently on Trilogy. Phenomenal. Another example of mm-hmm. just a classic, not only just classic hip hop, but the way that the instrumental aspect of the album lends to a chamber music concert. When mm-hmm. Kendrick came, you know, we were talking about this when Kendrick came to St. Paul not too long ago. It's not that I didn't want to go, but for me, the experience I want with a live performance of that album is one that really highlights the way that the piano and the strings and the percussion and and all of those things equally mesh together for what I would consider a really beautiful classical performance. Yeah. But, you know, but, but shout out to Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. I also want to um, note that Encanto won Best Score. I only saw the movie once. You're you're more into the animated things than, than I am. Why do you think Encanto uh, you know, grabbed so much popularity last year. Uh, honestly, the music is just infectious. I mean, it's really, really easy to not talk about Bruno. No, no. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. I think it just like caught people uh, for sure. Uh, like I only watched it once too, to be honest. Um, but it's, it's worth a rewatch. I want to go back. And I feel like one of the things that I enjoy most from the film was the multicultural aspects of, the the casting or, or or the way that they presented a, a singularly sure. uh, Latine community and culture as diverse. Yeah. I think we we need more of that right. generally. Right, just showing the world the way the world is. Yeah, um, and then finally, I'll note that the Metropolitan Opera won Best Opera Recording. Okay, not for a piece by Mozart, not for a piece by Rossini or or any of those famous people, but. Fire Shut Up In My Bones by Terrence Blanchard. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not going to spend too much time here, but I think this is very notable as well. So even in the deepest corners of so-called classical music, the Grammy Awards that go to Best Opera recording went to somebody black. The Met owes black people a lot at this point, and that's mm-hmm. period. That is the opera that changed the face of what uh, the plaza outside of the uh, outside of uh, Lincoln Center there looks like. The audience was diverse. You know, I never thought I would buy a ticket to go see a Met performance, but I bought a ticket to go see that. Planning I think there's some. Another? I think there's something to be said there. Now, at the end of the day, we're still supporting this institution. You know, they have Champion coming up uh, in April. Uh, they have Malcolm X. Coming up uh, next season that I really want to see. Shout out to Anthony Davis, member of the Triloquy family. What do you think? Is it pernicious to accept these awards and and, uh, platform oneself as this institution that's moving in a progressive way when at the end of the day, Fire Shut Up My Bones was the very first time they put a work by a black composer on the stage? See, the first time they Mm -hmm. give a damn about doing it. 
they 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 win an award at the Grammys and they get black people at the audience and now people are talking about the progress that the Met is making. And, See, and, and we're, and we're getting... the white power p- patting itself on the back. Listen, listen. Anyway, I just wanted to name that, <laughs> uh-huh. um, and and just note that anything we consider risky programming or adventurous programming, as I always say, proofs to be beneficial. It it proves to be successful. And I think this is another prime example of that. So shout out to Terrence Blanchard. Congratulations to Will Liverman and all of the folks who were uh, a part of that cast and a part of that recording. To the Met, I say, catch up. Maybe you should do a Mm -hmm. whole season of black music and maybe Mm -hmm. you'll win even more Grammys and have an even broader audience. A few weeks back, maybe a month back, Scott and I talked about the fact that they're digging $30 million into their endowment because they understand the impact of new music. Let this be an example to them and to the rest of the industry. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that'll do it for um, (laughs) my little accidental (laughs) on the Grammys. Uh, We are going to transition with... A little bit of music by Lizzo. I didn't mention uh, Lizzo and, and her Grammy win, but what I will say is that I caught her acceptance speech and she dedicated her win uh, not only to Beyonce, as people should, but, <laughs> but she dedicated her win to Prince as well. Uh, she talked about how when Prince transitioned, she wanted to dedicate her life to happy music. And it's so easy for the love mm. song to be sad or to, or music to make you headbang or pensive or what, mm. you know, that sort of thing. I think there's also a lot of room for happy music, music that gets you in yeah. an up mood. And Lizzo is the champion she of that. Is. She deserved that win. Yep. From her uh, live performance of About Damn Time on uh, uh, Howard Stern's show, She played a little bit of the flute, and I think it's also always important to highlight that. So here's Lizzo playing flute with her band in uh, this performance toward the tail end of About Damn Time, live from the Howard Stern Show to get us into our next accidental. She's also there with uh, an all-black ensemble, an all-black woman ensemble. Were you a, a Lizzo fan straight from the start? Did, did Lizzo grab you immediately? Do you feel like you had to warm up to her a little bit? What's your Lizzo story? I was listening to Lizzo before she hit. Oh, so like, you're going to hipster Lizzo. I'm going to hipster okay. Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, a friend of mine in uh, Knoxville that I used to work with, shout out to Laura Carroll, uh, introduced me to Lizzo when she shared this pot- Spotify playlist called That Bitch. Okay. <laughs> and Lizzo was on there a few times. I, I She might have actually uh, curated it. Um, and I fell in love immediately. And it wasn't like maybe a year or two later that her EP exploded and she, you know, started getting all this attention, yeah. which I was super excited for. Yeah, love her happy music. And I think it's very significant that Lizzo is a flute player and puts her flute playing to the front. Shout out to all of the Grammy winners, um, all of the people who uh, were there and nominated, you know, uh, shout out to Public Quartet. They've been on Triloquy. I was just so happy to mm-hmm. see them there in the space again. Like I said, I can say one thing about the Grammys, about let's ignore institutional X, Y, and Z, and 
It can also be true that I'm happy for my good, dear friends and colleagues who get to experience Absolutely. that sort of thing. Uh, uh, shout out to Curtis Stewart. He said, Taylor Swift is very tall in real life. So <laughs> that was interesting for me to know. Right. Anyway, all right, we got one. Oh, I didn't give that one an accidental, actually. See, with, with Scott here, I'm I'm not even all, all of my P's, or Q, P's and Q's. <laughs> I'll give my our Grammy talk a, a natural, you know, a little both and there. And yeah. we also have here uh, an article from I Care If You Listen, but between a sharp a flat or a natural? What would you give this article? Oh, I, I mean, I'm going to give this a sharp because it's uh, calling out something that needs to be, um, for sure. Uh, shout out to my colleagues at I Care If You Listen, uh, which is a program of American Composers Forum, of which I'm a staff member. Um, I really appreciated the piece. I really appreciated the piece. It made me think about conversations uh, we had at Sphinx surrounding music education, uh, concerning effective colonization that occurs you know, getting students ready for this ecosystem. Yeah. How about you give us a little bit of uh, the opening of this? I don't want the badge addressing classical music's burnout addiction. Honestly, given the musicians that I've gotten to know, uh, it makes sense. Uh, it's something that I wasn't really aware of uh, mm. before having access to folks that have uh, gone through the quote unquote pipeline, as sure. it were. Um, so... It makes sense, honestly. There's a uh, pe people seem to be told in school, you know, there uh, there are limited seats. Um, if you want to be able to actually do this and make it, you've got to be the best of the best of the best. Yeah, perpetuating that scarcity sort of mindset and how that can lead to burnout. Mm -hmm. Any, anyway, let's let's get into a little bit of this. Yeah, yeah. So she starts. Um, I don't think anyone has ever assumed that pursuing a degree in classical music would be easy. Despite a love for the craft, there is also the understanding that it requires hard work, including long hours practicing, composing, or studying scores. But what isn't discussed is the unhealthy practices in music education that prime young musicians for failure from the beginning, particularly the belief that burnout-inducing schedules offer an accurate representation of the professional world, a test to see if we will crack under the pressure. You know, I feel two ways about that, because on one hand— you know, uh, an adherence to this, as it says here, burnout-inducing schedule, burnout-inducing culture, that is something that we need to critique and change. What's also true, at least in my experience, is that to a degree, it is a test of what the profession looks like. I wish I were only as busy <laughs> as I was as a as a grad student, and I was running around Southern California everywhere. To me, it, it just seems like so much more. And, and maybe the way that I engage work and my multiple things is a product of that burnout-inducing culture. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I definitely think there's, there's something there. A little bit uh, into this uh, article, uh, 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 Michelle, she writes here, uh, I had been struggling with high anxiety, lack of focus, and intense irritability at the thought of checking my inbox. And while I was thrilled to be doing so much, I was also tired. The person she was uh, uh, talking to responded by saying, you're not burnout. You're only in your 20s. You haven't lived enough to earn that badge of honor yet. So again, with the experience that I am speaking to about being much busier and much more thinly stretched than I was as a student, I wonder what you think about the sort of gaslighting or the idea that someone in their 20s, a student, couldn't possibly be feeling burnout. I mean, when I read that line, I got frustrated for her because that's a disrespect to what her experience is, um, which is unnecessary. I mean, I get like 
trying to, you know, rib somebody a little bit and uh, maybe say, oh yeah, it's, it's busy. It's, it's hard out here. And it is, it is, but, but that doesn't mean that it's the way it has to be. Right. Right. It's, I, I have a problem with that notion. Um, I, and I think that that points to, well, I, I don't know. I, I guess I read this too, thinking that this is a much larger conversation than what is the specific uh, issue in in so-called classical music ecosystem as far as what the expectations are and needs for a musician to quote unquote make it in mm. the field. Um, there's a problem with our work culture broadly. Uh, we operate off of this, like you mentioned, this scarcity, this artificial scarcity mindset that is produced by an economic situation that forces everybody to work, work, work as much as possible in order to get crumbs at the end of the day for most of us. Right. And that's uh, that's touched on a little bit uh, later in this article. Michelle writes, as artists, we're expected to say our names, where we're based, and what our artistic goals are upon first meeting. We read out the laundry list of accomplishments for new faces and surprise old ones as we align ourselves with growing interests and allow our artistic practice to blossom. How have you engaged since entering the world of arts administration, this idea of not only work, but job being self-defining, you know, how, how we introduce ourselves to a stranger. And the, the second thing that they learn about us, you know, they learn our name and they learn what many of us do for eight hours a day. Right. I mean, it's interesting because I, before getting into this work in the, um, you know, in the so-called classical music uh, and, and art support, really nonprofit ecosystem. I was in food service and I didn't really, you know, there's a certain sort of identity that comes with that for sure, but I didn't identify with my work in the same way. Right. And so I didn't really experience that. And I had a lot of feelings about, you know, corporate America and how that, you know, did that to people. So it's interesting being on this side of it in a certain sense, because I'm proud to be able to do work that's Going, go, helping to directly support artists. And it's problematic for us to be defined by what we are doing in an economic sense in order to get the resources we need to survive. Um, so what are your ideas on an alternative? How, how, how can you engage an interrogation of job being defining in your day-to-day, -day, even when you're meeting new people? Yeah. And for me, that practice is a matter of embracing what is beneficial about the work that I'm doing and rejecting what isn't. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, and I recognize that I'm privileged in this and I don't take it for granted at all, um, there isn't a ton of my job and work day-to-day -day context that uh, creates you know too much dissonance for mm -hmm. me on that front. Especially, you know, there are a lot of organizations giving good attempts uh, at shifting, you know, the situation uh, by how they show up and engage in the work, centering equity. But at the end of the day, we all exist in the same busted economy and all of us answer to the almighty dollar. Mm. And so there's only so much that we can do from my perspective, um, other than be well in ourselves uh, and, you know, try to build solidarity to work towards broader change to actually address the issue that I think that she's touching on. Yeah. When you, you use the word privilege, and I do always try to recognize the ways in which my engagement of these conversations is rooted in privilege. You know, I'll, I'll say that first. I've been making it more of a practice to introduce my life more than I introduce myself as mm -hmm. having this job or 
or that job. Maybe that comes from, you know, my time doing it out here by myself as an <laughs> as an entrepreneur. But I think, you know, a part of it for me is just a continued interrogation of this culture, certainly within, you know, Western classical and the arts, but I think mm. even broader at the Sphinx conference that we both went to this year, when I, when I was presenting on stage, the first thing I said in introducing myself was, my name is Garrett and I'm a bodhisattva. And then I go into the fact that I play bassoon, not what orchestra or what job I have aligned, but that is a, an aspect of my life. I uh, talk about myself as a, uh, what did I say next? I think I said a radio and digital media producer. So again, I didn't even say the word triloquy. I just try to mm -hmm. separate myself from roles in that way yeah. and, and align myself more with what I do. But but then of course, you know, I, I, I do mention you know, toward the end, my job with the American <laughs> Composers Orchestra, because again, I I don't think there's anything wrong with having pride in work. I'm, right. I'm not saying that, no. but we we are so much more than our jobs, and right. ultimately, I think who we are away from our jobs is more important than who we are at it our jobs. Ultimately, is I mean, because if we all had what we needed, and it weren't a conversation about trying to gain resources or trying to gain a claim or trying to get whatever it is, even if it's exposure. Um, if we lived in a world where success was measured by more than just how much I can talk somebody else into believing they're going to get a return on an investment, yeah. um, then that could change. You know, our, our engagement has nothing to do with actual values at the end of the day or, or experience or purpose. Of course, it's going to actively devalue anything that doesn't directly contribute or is seen as contributing to bringing more money in. And that's what pushes all of this from my perspective. But I mean, for me, for, you know, talking about, about so-called classical music in the ecosystem, from my perspective, I, I feel that most artists probably know their inherent worth, or at least I hope that that'd be the case in mm. their work because art is subjective and it is a reflection of, of a person's perspective and experience. Um, so I guess I would just encourage folks to like live from that space and demand that the world do the same. Yeah. Um, cause we can't give our entire life to a system that's going to throw us away the moment it sees we can't produce more money for it. And that's on period. I don't care if you work for an orchestra, if you work for the most well-meaning arts support group, if you work for a bank, if you are a, a delivery driver, capitalism will replace you. At and, some point, we and, will and all end up in the garbage. That, that's the is, Isn't that a sad thought? So why would we define ourselves or even stress ourselves out <laughs> over those systems yeah. that are going to throw us away as soon as we can't type X words a minute or as soon as our voices go, or, or hearing goes mm -hmm. away, our ability to do X, Y, and Z? It's, it's, it's really deep and it's, it's, and it's, it's really sad. Yeah. And it ends up being ableist and ageist and all, all sorts of problematic from top to bottom. Yeah, Michelle uh, closes this uh, article with sadly, with the way our institutions currently are, I know my healed version of myself will not last. Schedules will become busier. The balance of school, gigs, and travel will start to eat at me, and I will be tempted by the fear of not being good enough if I don't continue in this way. But I am learning to trust my intuition and wanting to live healthily, while developing a career in the arts. This is my thing. You can hang on to that piece, but this is the problem. The more you hang on to your piece, the more that you're going to find dissonance with the systems and the ways in which we have been taught to live, mm -hmm. and especially the ways we have been taught to work. 
I find my piece, uh, you know, one, one of my New Year's resolutions, and I even said this at a staff meeting, was to build boundaries. And after X time and before X time, I'm just not going to check my email. You're welcome to send me an email to ping me on whatever, but I am not going to read it. You know, and there, and and that's been a uh, a a, ch- a good sort of challenge for me to practice that because I'm looking at my inbox right now. There are 96 emails in there, that's and I, and a part of me is curious to see if there is a, a music emergency. But <laughs> it'll be it'll, emergency. it'll be fine until eight o'clock tomorrow morning. How do you how do you hang on to to your piece? And uh and it's really funny that the, the way things have ended up with us sort of working for sibling organizations, mm-hmm. you know, at, at least during the day. How do you hang on to your piece as supportive and as human focused mm-hmm. as the American Composers Forum is? Mm-hmm. How how do you you know even continue to to hang on to your piece in a in a job where you have more privileges than most? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a practice. Um, because I haven't, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, I was in a way for sure. Mm. And it has really just, for me, it really just looks like getting to a place more and more where I have the ability to recognize that I am inherently worthy and my feelings about whether or not certain things are or aren't like going a certain way. If I'm, you know, buried under all this work and have like got to put all of this extra time and hours and energy and effort into it. Like either, either what, like what's the problem? I'm not the problem if I'm always showing up to work and and doing it. So I just let go of, of the feeling that I needed to be ahead and, and embrace the fact that nobody is dying and it's okay. (laughs) Specifically in the work that I'm doing, it's okay for this to wait for, tomorrow or next week if it needs because other things need to get done including my rest and my peace of mind right and right. and really seeing that as equal because i don't have the ability to work if i'm not rested it's just it's just self-care really it really is and prioritizing yourself in a healthy way absolutely well Shout out and thank you to Michelle Roman and to everyone over at I Care If You Listen. Again, as you mentioned, a project, a product of the American Composers Forum. Always great to uh, read things from there. I'll have links to both of our accidentals in the description. But to get us into the second movement, since Michelle is a clarinetist, I wanted to shine a light on a black clarinetist to get us into the second movement. So there's a clarinetist out there by the name of Ariana Stanberry, and she has produced some lo-fi hip-hop featuring the clarinet. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to get us into our second movement today. Teaching our little fifth and sixth graders 
to do that. I, I don't know how old Ariana is. You know, of course, black don't crack, but she looks like a high school age student to me. Maybe she's older, but you know, we we have the ability to develop the whole musician, not just the instrumentalist, not not just the clarinet player, but the musician, the person who can get a feeling mm-hmm. and create a sound that can just benefit other people. I was so happy to stumble upon that this week. So yeah, huge shout good. out to Ariana Stanberry. And uh, we're here in the second movement where Dell and I are going to talk a little bit about a piece of music that we've been repeating and why we've been doing so. I'm going to get us started this week, Dell. So I have the great privilege, speaking of work and speaking of jobs, I have the great privilege of getting to interface with lots of different orchestra leaders, conductors, administrators. And uh, over this past year, I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting and dialoguing with John Devlin, who is the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. Have Had you ever heard of Wheeling, West Virginia? I hadn't. I don't think I had, to be honest. Yeah, and I only mentioned that because we have orchestras, we have music making happening, not in New York, not in Los Angeles, Chicago, Nashville, you know, these big cities. We we have music that's happening in every corner of of our country. And in some of those smaller, not so well-known institutions, some really incredible musicking that's happening. Uh, this uh, past season, uh, a few months ago, the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra, under the baton of John Devlin, premiered a tune called Migrations in Rhythm. It's a concerto, not for violin or for bassoon or any of those typical orchestral instruments, but a concerto for beatbox. And we're going to listen to a little bit of the introduction of it here. Again, Migrations in Rhythm by Evan Meyer and Kristals Bacon, featuring the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra under the baton of John Devlin. So as you can hear, the Mars. audience, the the audience was even a little um, hesitant to participate <laughs> in the in the performance. You know, shout out to Adrian Dunn as well. I went and saw the Rise Orchestra in Los Angeles the, this past weekend. I think in addition to a programmatic shift in concert halls, opera houses, classical radio stations, there also has to be an audience shift. You know, when we Mm -hmm. go and, you know, if we get to go and see Beyonce with as much as she's charging for these damn tickets, but if we go (laughs) get to go see Beyonce, we're we're not going to sit there quietly, politely, and only clap between movements of Renaissance. We're going to be engaged. So I think Mm -hmm. for 
concert halls to really shift in that way as well. We have to have the bravery to be the first ones to stand up and dance Mm -hmm. or the first ones to say, oh, you better sing up there or the first ones to participate in what Chris Stiles is trying to get the audience to do there by doing the call and response and and that sort of thing. Of course, the literature, the the repertoire is a key ingredient in all of that. But I think it's just so phenomenal that we're beginning to see this shift all the way to a symphony in West Virginia, of all places, <laughs> no shade, mm-hmm. but the celebration to to highlight uh, Crystal's bacon and put on this beatbox concerto. Here's a little bit more of it before I leave it here. And, you know, the other thing that I was thinking as we were listening to that, the aesthetic of the symphonic sound and the rap is not foreign. Like, like there are so many albums. You know, we were talking about Danger Mouse and Black Thought a lot last year, mm-hmm. me and Scott. You know, that that is present there. We were just talking about Kendrick earlier uh, in, uh, in our conversation. Mm-hmm. That symphonic aspect of hip hop has long been, arguably always been a part of it. So it's not yeah. like hip hop is shifting. It's the so-called classical industry that has Absolutely. to do the shifting. We're ready for it. The artists are ready for it. The uh, audiences are ready for it, certainly speaking for myself. And the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra is ready for it as well. So shout out to nice. them. Hope to hear much more from them Absolutely. in the future. All right. What a uh, second ending are you bringing to Triloquy this week? Yeah. So uh, this coming Monday marks the 30th anniversary of the release of Oakland, California native hip hop group Souls of Mischief's debut soul studio album, 93 Till Infinity. Uh, the title track has to be one of my favorite, uh, well, I say one of my personal favorite hip hop records. Uh, so I've been listening to it a lot lately, thanks to an exercise at work uh, where we were asked to bring in a piece of music that means a lot of us, a uh, lot to us, or one that we love. So I brought in 93 Till Infinity. Oh, so, oh, so Triloquy is inspiring y'all's, y'all's staff meetings and things, you know. Okay, <laughs> but never, okay go, but go on. Go on. <laughs> I don't know if it was Triloquy because, you know, we, we all love music in there. Sure, but, sure. Um, yeah, so I've been respinning it since. So uh, the, the track was uh, actually created using samples from Billy Cobham's 1974 record, Heather, from his album Crosswinds. Oh, you've done all your homework Yeah, here. I actually listened to it. Um, it's really interesting. I love what they did with it. It's like super slowed down. It's not what I expected, mm. um, but it was obvious where they, where they uh, brought the samples for the track. Um, it was produced by Souls of Mischief member A+, when they were all still in high school. Wow. Yeah, yeah, uh, in 91. It was originally 91 till then. And it was a few years later. <laughs> but yeah. they upgraded to 93. Right, right. Um, so uh, I feel it's an important track talking about black history, um, specifically hip hop history, because of how genre, uh, genre shifting and ubiquitous it's ended up being in hip hop. It's been referenced or sampled in more than 40 songs to date, including by Joey Badass, Freddie Gibbs, J. Cole, um, some big names in hip hop. Personally, I've, I've adored this track since the first time I heard it. I It can always help pick my spirits up if I'm down. It makes me feel chill and happy no matter what's going on. Um, Scott talks about that feeling you get when listening to a favorite song in the yeah. late afternoon, yeah. you know, maybe driving around in the summer. That's the feeling this track gives me every single time I hear it. Let's rub down, a rub down some flavor. 
as it was said there, mm-hmm. I get inspired by the blunts too. I get inspired by the blunts as well. Same, same. That's, that track's one of the best examples I can think of of like what, like a slow jam. It may or may not make you dance. It's impossible not to nod your head with the beat while you're listening. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to mention three days ago, Souls of Mischief announced a 93 till infinity 30th anniversary world tour. Oh, wow. Um, so look up uh, tickets and dates online, see where you might be able to catch them performing it live. So we got to buy tickets to Beyonce and to Souls of Mischief. Okay, fine. I have to see fine. that. <laughs> I have to see it. What do you think about the music video aesthetic? Because these days, and, and this is not me saying anything about it, but these days- you don't really see rappers out in nature and doing <laughs> and doing right. that sort of thing in music videos, but there's just a a beautiful sort of innocence about even the the uh, the visuals that mm-hmm. go along with with this track. Oh yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. It's just there. There's obviously like this. We we need to like chill and hang and and relax. You know, maybe it's a like after partying on the weekend. What are we gonna do? Let's just like hang out. I love. Like they're cre- they're trying to create that space with the music, and I guess that uh, reflected in the way that they put the video together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's beautiful stuff. If you for some reason had never heard that track before, go spend some time with it. And if you like me are inspired by the blunts, maybe you can, <laughs> mm-hmm. and like Souls of Mischief, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe you can add that to your experience yeah. of that music. Thank yeah. you, thank you for bringing that in. I yeah. think that's a great track. Thanks for to Black Opio Tage A plus and. Uh, Festo. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we are transitioning here into the third movement. I am so honored to be able to feature a recent conversation that I had with Cesar Chivetta. Cesar has conducted more than 60 orchestras in 15 countries. He's a fellow Buddha. He'll get into that toward the end of our conversation. He's a friend and someone, though, who I really consider an ally, maybe even an accomplice. I know that we have And by we, I mean the culture. We have been very intentional, maybe even interrogating that word ally and the the idea of an ally. But Caesar has fallen in love with Black music so much uh, through his recent discoveries and and just learning about names that I tend to think are, are commonplace. He has gone down the road of buying scores and getting parts together and dedicated all of his time to the formation of a new orchestra that will platform this music for audiences who, like him, once upon a time, never knew it existed. So we'll talk about uh, that Mm -hmm. orchestra uh, as well. So again, really excited to share my conversation uh, that I had with Caesar. The last time Caesar was on Triloquy, we focused on Paul Robeson. So that's where we sort of start our conversation uh, this week as a little bit of a refresher. So to transition into my conversation with Caesar Civetta, we're going to hear a Paul Robeson performance. This is the late Paul Robeson performing No More auction block to get us into my conversation with Caesar Civetta. I hope y'all enjoy. No more auction block for me. No more, no more. No more auction block for me. Many It's interesting because he was erased from history. And so there's a lot of people that 
are not familiar with his life's work. And there's a lot of young people that never heard the name Paul Robeson, mm. and which is always drives me to try to remedy that. But we're talking about someone born at the end of the 19th century whose father was enslaved, you know, someone who was one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He mastered over 20 languages. He was an attorney. He studied at Columbia University Law School. He was a nationally known football player in college and played in the first season of the NFL when it was formed. <laughs> he also played professional basketball. He was the valedictorian of his senior class. Uh, he made lots of Hollywood movies as an actor. He was acclaimed universally without controversy as a great Shakespearean actor, even in Shakespeare's home at Stratford <laughs> for his portrayal of Othello. He made over 200 recordings, and then he gave it all up. He gave up this incredible career so that he could be an activist for human rights. My goodness. And after, you know, we get horrified when we when we learn of the police murdering a young black person unarmed but at the end of world war ii when black soldiers returned home to the united states what happened to them 1946 hundreds of these black soldiers were being lynched in the south Robeson got a meeting with the president of the United States and marched into the Oval Office to demand that something be done about this with President Truman. He created a document that he brought to the United Nations entitled, We Charge Genocide. So he was doing this in the 40s, long before Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks. Or, and... He was so radical, he identified with Frederick Douglass, with W.E.B. Du Bois, who ended his life in Ghana. Mm. Uh, Robeson's passport was confiscated for eight years. He was a prisoner in his own country, not allowed to leave the United States. And Robeson was so radical, he started his own newspaper called Freedom that he and W.E.B. Du Bois contributed articles to regularly. And what did the black leaders say? Oh, you're going too fast. Mm. No, 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 we have to go gradually. And his response was, well, how much longer do you want to wait? So they cut him off. First, they, they gave him the Spingarn Medal of NAACP, and then they turned against him. And so he was all alone. And eventually, he was silenced, and eventually his brain was damaged permanently because of his activism. Mm. So this is someone who should be very well known. And uh, it's just a, a, a tragedy that people don't know who he was and what he did. One of the most fascinating things about Robeson to me is that he transcended any and all parameters. We don't just think of him as an athlete or just a stage actor or even just an activist or, or musician. He, he filled so uh, many spaces. Uh, I bring that up because among the things that he transcended was this idea of genre. That was, that, that's not something that you can just pin him in as far as he was classical or he was jazz or he was 
theater. I wonder if you could speak to uh, this idea of transcending genre. We can always have conversations about what is classical, what isn't. But at the end of the day, I mean, maybe it's important to note this idea of good music versus bad music and not, you know, assigning genre to certain things, certainly not to certain people. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've made a decision recently to stop referring to different kinds of music as belonging to different kinds of genres. And I got the idea from Louis Armstrong, who was greatly opposed to labeling. He was born in 1900 or 1901, and he said that he came up playing in New Orleans, playing Dixieland music. He said, but they called it also ragtime music. And then later they called it jazz. He said it was all the same music, but they started giving it different names. And uh, in the late 20s, jazz historians are now commenting that he's, some of his recordings were predating the bebop era 15 years ahead of time. And so his conclusion was that one must appreciate and listen to all kinds of music, as he did. And the great lesson I took away from was against labeling genres. He said, I only play one kind of music, good music. Mm. And that's echoed by Jesse Norman. Jesse Norman was a freak of nature. I got to hear her three times in person. My goodness, what a life-changing experience. That instrument that she had was enormous. It was unlike anything I had ever heard before or since. And she also had the range. She could sing high C, she sang Isolde, the soprano repertoire, but she sang mezzo-soprano roles. She had, a, she had the middle register, she had the bottom register, she could sing anything she wanted, and it confused a lot of people when she was coming up. And so the question she would be asked was, well, just exactly what kind of singer are you anyway? And her response was wonderful. She said, well, I believe that pigeonholes are only good for pigeons. Mm. So my decision is I'm no longer going to refer to any kind of music as this kind of label or this kind of genre. I love South African music, the, the music that, that gave people joy and hope during the many years of Nelson Mandela's imprisonment. Uh, to hear a Chinese, a traditional Chinese instrument orchestra play, to me is some of the most beautiful sounds. When I first heard that in China, I remarked that on my deathbed, I'd like to hear this this kind of music. Um, so my my tastes are nowhere near as broad as yours, but. <laughs> But for me, uh, I grew up on Beethoven. You know, I started listening to Beethoven when I was 12 and 13. And so uh, I was born in 1959. And so I've spent 50 years basically studying and analyzing and conducting, rehearsing, performing the music of the 19th century. That's really my my bread and butter, that's the music that I've spent this time with. However, uh, in more recent years, you know, I've gained an incredible appreciation for Louis Armstrong, for example. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't want to move too far away from Louis Armstrong because one of the, you know, really impactful moments of 
of my life for sure was your taking me to the Louis Armstrong Museum in uh, in Corona Queens in in New York. The tour guide uh, asked all sorts of questions, and I appreciated how polite you were because you knew the answer to every question. I mean, your 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 affinity for Louis Armstrong is is really apparent. I wonder if you could talk about how you came on to Louis Armstrong. This certainly wasn't a a musician who you learned about in music school. So how how did that come about for you? I'm just very attracted to his music making. Uh, f- uh, for example. Uh, to hear his solo in Potato Head Blues is, is something I could never get tired of, or the expressivity with which he sang. Um, and and for me, Louis Armstrong is, is timeless. And he was a great, great fighter for human rights as well. He refused to march during the 1960s and was greatly criticized for that. But his rationale was, if I'm in the street marching, someone bashes me in the face, ruins my chops, a trumpet player without chops, he's finished. And he considered his trumpet his weapon. Armstrong is a name that many people know, but there are so many other people whose names that are familiar to me, that are normal to me, that you remind me other people don't know. I was completely shocked, for example, when you told me that people just don't know the name Florence Price. People just don't know the name William Levy Dawson. I wonder, you know, in 2023, as we're having this conversation, how well known are or aren't these composers still, you know, from your perspective, do we overestimate how well-known figures like Florence Price and William Levy Dawson are? You know, I'm currently taking a second course in Black composers offered by Titus Underwood online. And he was just commenting recently that even in his education at the conservatories, he had never been taught anything about these composers. And, And only in recent years has he discovered them. And uh, likewise, I never heard of any of these composers until I started listening to your podcast. (laughs) And uh, I'm so excited that in April, the very first biography of William Dawson is going to be published. I've already ordered, pre-ordered my copy on Amazon. Uh, Florence Price is just such a heartbreaking story. You know, what this woman went through, this great composer, my goodness. I was reading these uh, two biographies of Florence Price recently. You know, she was quite successful living in Chicago. Uh, Her music was played regularly and so forth. She was very busy, very involved, very active. However, because she went to the New England Conservatory of Music and Boston Symphony was just across the street, in her mind, she hadn't really made it unless the East Coast orchestras, we're talking about the 1930s, where there wasn't all these orchestras as there are today. In those days, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia were really the the orchestras. Later, Cleveland and Chicago and LA came. But uh, in those days, uh, she hadn't considered that she had arrived unless Boston, New York, and Philadelphia played her music. So she wrote a letter to the conductor of the Boston Symphony, Serge Kuzovitsky, at that time. He was a bass player from Russia. 
His wife was an incredibly wealthy woman who, who must have largely financed the Boston Symphony all the years he was the conductor there. He couldn't even read viola clef. And just as an anecdote, he programmed Mozart's divertimento for strings and two horns, page 287. And he didn't know that at the end of the slow movement, when uh, Mozart wrote a 164 chord with a fermata, <laughs> and then a pause, and then a trill, that the performance practice is you're supposed to insert a cadenza at, after that fermata. So he played it without any cadenza. <laughs> and uh, Toscanini decided to conduct that piece and broadcast it live on NBC radio just to teach Kuzovitsky that when you get to a 164 chord at the end of a movement and a fermata, that's where the cadenza goes. <laughs> anyway, that's who she was dealing with. She wrote to him six times over a nine year period. In her first letter, she said, sent the first symphony and her piano concerto. And she said, please look at these uh, compositions to consider for possible performance. No response. That was 1935. She waited six years before she could get up the courage to write a second letter in 1941. No response. She waited another two years. In 1943, she wrote to him again, and she said, I have two handicaps those of sex and race. I am a woman, and I have some Negro blood in my veins. I should like to be judged on merit alone. The great trouble, having been to get conductors to even consent to examine a score, and writing this letter to you is the result of having successfully done battle with a hounding timidity. Will you examine one of my scores? No response. Four months later, she wrote again, and she talked about the work of a woman composer is preconceived by many to be light, frothy, lacking in depth, logic, and virility. Add to that the incident of race. I have colored blood in my veins my own detestable but seemingly unconquerable shyness has not served me to gain for me widespread hearing. An assistant of Kuzovitsky finally responded, indicating that if she would send another score, the conductor would look at it when his time permitted. And then a year later, she wrote again in 1944, a fifth letter. And then six months after that, she wrote a sixth letter. And finally, after nine years, she got the response, which indicated, well, he looked at it, but he never chose to conduct it. But this is what she had to go through, this great composer. Can you imagine? Let's just call it what it is. Let's just, let's just be outright. Black composers have been historically neglected because of deeply embedded systemic racism, period. This, this nine-year ordeal of writing to this conductor and not getting a response, I think it's rude, it's arrogant, it's discourteous, it's inconsiderate. I mean, what does it take to acknowledge someone sending you some correspondence or a message? 30 seconds. 
Often these people are multimillionaires. They have assistants. Their assistants have secretaries. They have secretaries. The secretaries have assistants. What does it take to say, please send an acknowledgement and a one-sentence reply to the effect of whatever? I think it's just awful to ignore. When someone, as an artist that she was, and she's even writing about how hard it was to get up the courage to reach out to promote herself. And then to be ignored, it's happened to me too. And I, I take it very personally, horrific behavior. So how should we treat these historical figures that were so rude, who were exhibiting this racism? I mean, there are many people who would have a big problem with us saying anything disparaging about Kusevitsky. We could even go further back in, in history and, and name other bits of uh, examples of racism and, and, and that sort of thing. Should we not consider these historical facts when we think about the history of, or, of orchestral music and who we venerate, who we put on stage, who we celebrate? You know, I'm a white man, but I, I, I am really, really saddened and, and distraught over the treatment that these people got. William Dawson, his symphony was, was played in Philadelphia by Leopold Stokowski, who had created the first Fantasia movie in 1940. He was a, he was, he was a well-known celebrity. And they did performances in Philly, standing ovations. They loved his symphony. The Dawson Symphony was an enormous success. Then the Philadelphia Orchestra took it to Carnegie Hall. Same thing. Name one more orchestra piece by William Dawson since 1934. No one knows of one. And he lived until, I think, 1990. This man must have been discouraged. It's just horrific. What is it about the Negro Folk Symphony, you know, this piece that the Philadelphia Orchestra uh, premiered, what is it about that piece that uh, attracts you to it? I mean, you, you, you love it. You talk about it all the time. Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just center on the first movement. I think the first movement of the Dawson Symphony is absolutely so chuck full of energy and dynamism, it's akin to the first movement of the Beethoven Fifth. It's that kind of a piece, similar length, by the way. You know, these composers, we all talk about uh, the, the fact that the Metropolitan Opera played, you know, a production of the first opera ever by a black composer last season. Oh, so what? The <laughs> Metropolitan Opera was formed in 1883. There were slaves. That it took 100 and, 140 years to schedule an opera by a black composer. And we should celebrate that. What a shameful statistic but again the negro folk symphony you know we do have this piece of music that's now coming to the to the top of people's awareness you know it's getting programmed again is it the fact that uh the spirituals are connected to it is it just the general aesthetic i, I wonder if you could just say more about the significance of this piece at least from your perspective i just think that music speaks to the heart you know, and, and people who finally get to hear it, because most people don't know it existed. They never heard the name of William Dawson. And when they hear it, they respond in kind. It's great music, period. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As is the music of Florence Price. That piano concerto that she wrote, my goodness, to hear Michelle Kahn play the Florence Price piano concerto, this is a fantastic experience. And what about Samuel Coleridge Taylor? In England, oh my goodness, 
what fantastic music. I'm just now discovering. It's so exciting. Thanks to you. <laughs> All of these people that you're mentioning have some sort of connection one way or another to the spiritual, the Negro spiritual. Even Samuel Coleridge Taylor in England, you know, wrote a, a very beautiful arrangement of, of Deep River. Can you remember your first interactions with the spirituals? I mean, you you love them now, but I wonder where that where that love was seated. You know, Garrett, I love you so much, and uh, I'm old enough to be your father. And you come from the South, you know, brought up in the church. I come from the Bronx <laughs> as a white guy. So our backgrounds are so different, you know, but yet there's so much that we have in common. Uh, you know, when I was 12, I entered high school and uh, it was very interesting. The choir director was a black man with a wonderful tenor voice from Virginia. James K. Johnson, and he had us singing spirituals wow. all the years I was in his choir. And wow, what an exciting experience. I mean, there were I, there's them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. Ride the chariot. Were you there? I got shoes down by the riverside. Ezekiel saw the wheel. And so this was in my adolescence. But now, so many decades later, for me to hear in Florence Price's Mississippi River, her orchestration of several of those of Deep River and Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen and Go Down Moses, to hear how magnificently she incorporates them into this tone poem of going down or up the Mississippi River. <gasps> is so magnificent. What a discovery to discover her Mississippi River. But also, I recently uh, came across this magnificent composer. Perhaps you're familiar, uh, Fred Onovero Suoke. Oh, yeah. Shout out he's, to uh, he's from Ghana of Nigerian parents, my age. And uh, he turned me on to William Dawson as a conductor because he had a choir of his own, the Tuskegee Institute Choir, and they made a recording of 15 spirituals. And I tell you, to hear Dawson's recording of him conducting his own arrangement of these spirituals, for example, Ezekiel saw the wheel, to hear Dawson conducting, there is a balm in Gilead. I tell you, it's not, it's not only these, but I also recommend to everyone, if you haven't seen it on YouTube, there's a beautiful video of Deep River in Samuel Coleridge Taylor's arrangement for cello and piano performed by Sheku Kanemason and his sister Isata. <gasps> oh my God, what a life-changing experience to hear that. Th this music is is created was created from the heart from the deepest depths of the soul of these enslaved people and to hear roland hayes one of the greatest singers that ever lived who recorded were you there and swing low sweet chariot a cappella these are 
absolutely life-changing experiences. I put it absolutely side by side with the Beethoven Ninth, with the Misa Solemnis, with the Bach B minor mass. This is the great, great music. And it was, you know, conceived and created in the United States. This is the truly great American music. So let me ask you this. You didn't hesitate to identify systemic racism as one of the things that Florence Price was dealing with when she spent all of those years writing Kusevitsky. In your opinion, what's keeping this great music that you put, as you said, next to Beethoven's masterpieces, what's keeping this music from the center today? Are we deal are we talking about the same thing? Is it systemic racism? Is it something more? You know, it's a very complex subject. When when Roland Hayes and Paul Robeson just about the same time in the 1920s, started performing spirituals. They were performing entire concerts comprised of 100% spirituals. And in, in Harlem, Robeson was doing it at rent parties. And, you know, there were New Yorker, Black New Yorkers educated that were from New York. They, they, they didn't migrate from the South. They were from the Northeast. They were not happy, and they specifically asked Robeson not to sing the spirituals because it didn't make them feel comfortable. They they didn't they didn't want to have any kind of association with where that music came from historically. They asked him not to sing it. Fortunately, he did his own thing, and for the next five years, and by the way, for a while they shared the same pianist, Lawrence Brown. Brown and Robeson toured all over the country for five years, exclusively performing spirituals. And Hayes was doing it in Europe, dressed in, you know, Hayes never sang opera, neither did Robeson. Hayes would come out in his white tie and tails in Europe as a black man in the 20s. And he was incredibly popular. Roland Hayes was earning $100,000 a year in the 1920s singing Schubert and Schumann. <laughs> Can you imagine? Could never do it in the United States. So, you, so you're saying that the uh, approximation to slavery and, and slave music is still a, a factor in, in people's, you know, not being so familiar with the spiritual, you know them, but they're still not taught in music school. There are many people who have never heard of a Bob and Gilead. Oh, absolutely. There's, uh, we have a, a young friend, Hunter Ferguson, a mutual friend of ours who grew up in Harlem. He's in his late 20s. He doesn't know any of these spirituals, not the titles and not the melodies. And so that means that he didn't grow up in the church as you did. Hmm. So there's plenty of uh, younger uh, Black folk who don't know them unless they grew up in the church. Well, one way that I know you, I should say we are working to fix that is to incorporate, you know, these these melodies, these compositions into the programming of the of the BFO. Before we specifically talk about the BFO, I wonder um, if you could speak to some of the issues that you're hoping uh, that this newly found orchestra will address. Repertoire is one thing, but there are so many other things that go into the culture of an orchestral experience that need to shift. I mean, we can talk about the dress codes. We can talk about sitting quietly in uncomfortable seats. So I, I wonder if, if you could speak to some of the things that you've identified as far as the broader culture of the orchestral experience that you're interested in changing. Oh, God, let's start with uh, representation. How about that? 
<laughs> diversification. In the New York Philharmonic in the early 60s, another old orchestra from the 19th century, they hired finally their first black player, imagine. Sanford Allen as a violinist. He lasted several, many years, finally quit in frustration. Mm. He was remained the only black player. That was in the early 60s. It's now 2023. How many black players are employed by the New York Philharmonic today? A one, <laughs> the principal clarinet player, Anthony McGill. So, uh, you know, the idea of creating an orchestra that resembles the demographics of whatever city, I live in New York. So to have an orchestra where you have predominant representation from black and brown people is something you don't see anywhere in the United States, color of music, gateways, and so forth. Yeah, for one week out of the year, but that's not that's not what we're talking about. Uh, or I guess in London, maybe Chinake is the only one that you could say, where you have just primarily local talent comprising an orchestra. But uh, so diversity is one thing. And I think, you know, people have been mistreated uh, historically. Uh, so why not shift the balance uh, in in their favor and, and let's hire and shine the spotlight on all this talent? You know, there's uh, the notion that uh, maybe the talent isn't out there. That's nonsense. You know, the talent is there. So I, I intend to if I have that opportunity to employ performing artists. Let's let's employ lots of. Uh, great musicians of color in the orchestra as principal players, as instrumental soloists playing concertos, as opera singers singing uh, with the orchestra. And then the question becomes, what kind of an atmosphere are we going to have? You know, I, I'm against the monochromatic uniform of performers wearing all black or black and white or white tie and tails or tuxedo. I just saw a sphinx photograph from last weekend, orchestra wearing tuxedos. Why? <laughs> if someone goes to an expensive French restaurant, they're greeted by the maitre d', he's wearing a tuxedo. If that's his costume, why should an orchestra player wear the costume of a maitre d' in a French restaurant? I love the way you dress. You have these full lengths down to the floor garments that say you. They express who you are as a celebration of your uniqueness and your humanity. Why can't the orchestra players wear what they feel most comfortable in? You know, why can't the stage be filled with garments of all color, for starters? Why, when we go to the movies, there's a, in the armrest a place to put your drink, but not in the concert hall? Why can't we eat and drink during a concert? And, why, and this business about not applauding be, between movements, who said? Who made that rule? It didn't exist in the 19th century. You're going to tell me that at the end of the first movement of the Tchaikovsky First Piano Concerto, after 22 minutes of pyrotechnics, wizardry, maybe they break a string. There's an incredible <laughs> uh, virtuosic display, octaves and everything. You get to the end. The natural instinctive reaction is to jump out of your seat and shout like a home run at a ball game. Oh, no, you have to sit there and... This is a stifling atmosphere. The encrustation and formality makes it so unattractive. No wonder young people wouldn't want to go to hear a symphony orchestra. 
I, I intend, hopefully with your help, that we can create an orchestra where all of that gets thrown out the window. So how have uh, the foundations of the BFO, this new orchestra, been built? There, you know, there is funding, there, there are plans in, in place. I wonder if you can uh, speak to how you've managed to do it so far. Just from the heart. You know, like I spoke earlier, I'm against labeling of, of genres. You know, even the word classical, it denotes sometimes a, a chronological era in history. It doesn't even make sense. Because if you talk about the classical period, when I first heard the Haydn, the overture to Haydn's creation, which has beautiful bassoon writing, by the way, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this is romantic music. But, but, but everyone has to be in a box. Everyone is pigeonholed. You know, there's all these categories. I don't think it works for chronological designation and certainly not for genres. And I think language is very important. So I just speak direct. I speak from the heart. And I think that language is, is, is something that psychologically or subliminally is so powerful. For example, why, if a cop commits murder, we don't say, he was fired. No, he was relieved of duty. It's a, it's a massaging, it's a, the language. Or, for example, why is it called homicide? When we're talking about murder, it, th these words have a very different effect. Or why do they refer to law enforcement? They're cops, the police, law enforcement. Or why do we want someone to be held accountable? We want them to be put in jail. Say what it is. And what's this with the, the one I hate the most? Police brutality, which you're guilty of saying on the podcast a week ago. Sure. Police brutality is when you take a, a club and, and hit someone with it. But if you take a gun and shoot and kill someone, it's called police murder. So I, th I think language is, is really crucial. And, and so I like to operate from the heart, whether I'm making music or whether I'm talking. And I, I try to be mindful of, of language. So during the pandemic, I decided to make available to a lot of elderly music lovers that are homebound, uh, a weekly series on Zoom where I play some of their favorite music and, and a profile, either a composer or a performer, and, and tell the story of their life. And sometimes I choose really great humanitarians at that, uh, such as Paul Robeson. Uh, and they love it. And uh, they're very appreciative. It's free. And in response, they've been contributing to the orchestra. So uh, this Beethoven Festival Orchestra so far has attracted more than 500 donors just making small grassroots uh, donations. And uh, it's nothing I masterminded or strategized. It's, it's just something through my prayer, chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, that I was able to uh, come up with this series on Zoom. And we've created 50 programs. And now, in this month of February, uh, in celebration of Black Heritage, Black History Month, I'm sorry that you know, it's still designated as a month. Uh, it should be all year. But uh, you're creating a program for us devoted to uh, women composers. 
primarily uh, women of color. So that's exciting. And I'm presenting uh, a program on the music and fascinating life of Scott Joplin and a two-part series on great African-American opera singers, starting all the way back with Marian Anderson and going all through chronologically Leontine Price and Jesse Norman and then some of the wonderful uh, singers that are active today, like Lawrence Brownlee and uh, Angel Blue and uh, very exciting. We have uh, 22, uh, 22 singers in the two-part series. And so my uh, elderly music-loving audience uh, tuning in on Zoom at home is something that they look forward to every week, every Sunday. And uh, so that's how we've been able to uh, begin fundraising for the orchestra. So how can people tune in to those programs? I know that you don't offer them you know, on, online for people to download or anything like that. They have to be live. So how can people know when and where to go to take part in these programs and to contribute to the BFO? Oh, the easiest way is just to contact me at uh, my uh, site, CesarChivetta.com. And uh, then through there, I can I can have them uh, put on the list uh, and they'll get emails of all the announcements and the Zoom links and, and so forth. Uh, the last thing I just wanted to mention is my mentor, the Buddhist philosopher, Daisaku Ikeda. And uh, a lot of my philosophy derives from uh, his writings. He was more prolific than Dostoevsky, than Tolstoy. He's now 95 and still going strong. And uh, he wrote uh, about his deep love for music. And, you know, coming from World War II, when Japan was firebombed, and then, of course, the atomic bombs, as a 20-year-old in 1948, uh, he wrote about his experience with music through recorded music. And he, he wrote that, um, when I played my records, my anguish melted away, and the music made me aware that I was a human being. In that post-war period, I experienced some inexplicably joyful moments of ecstasy. And, you know, this, this um, uh, sensation of being uneducated about music uh, doesn't matter. He wrote that music speaks directly to the heart, rejecting reason, logic, and speculation. It's meaningless whether it's a symphony, a concerto, popular music, folk songs, people like what they like. They don't ask whether the music comes from the East or the West. For me, what counts is whether the music touches a responsive chord. There is probably nothing that speaks as directly to the human heart as music. Music has the power to cut across all barriers and make our hearts respond mutually to it. If it is true that the great task for all people is to learn how to resonate with the hearts of other people, to put a stop to the bloody scenes that blemish our world, then I venture to say that music is one of the most effective ways to make us equal to this task. So that's my mission. I feel that with all the hatred and violence in the world that I can play my part 
you know, by offering great music, all kinds of music, and allowing its effect, hopefully, to impact the listeners as it has so impacted my life in so many ways. You know, as soon as I'm just completely ready to throw orchestral music all the way in the trash, at least <laughs> for me, mm-hmm. I'm reminded about aspects of that so-called genre that are just so beautiful. We heard a little mm-hmm. bit there of uh, of the Mississippi River Suite by Florence Price, the main melody, of course, inspired by the spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, but... Mm-hmm. Alongside that, you have the woodwinds doing their bird sound things. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard not to picture just the the natural beauty of what was born from the struggle of, mm-hmm. of the spiritual and slavery and those things, you know, and Florence Price just beautifully encapsulating it there. I wonder if you can uh, sort of speak to what you have seen from Caesar. You've you've met Caesar a couple times at at this point. Yeah. You you see how excited this white man gets about black music and the idea of reframing the orchestral experience. Yeah. What well, what's been Caesar's impact on you? I I really appreciate Caesar and as as a white man who feels similarly in that regard, I really appreciate the the energy he's got and that he brings to well honestly just life in general. Uh I really appreciate I really appreciate him as a person being able to like spend a little bit of time with him that I have. Yeah. And uh, of, of course, you know, Caesar did close out there by uh, speaking to his Buddhist practice, our Buddhist practice as, you know, Caesar as your grand sponsor. <laughs> I, I wonder if you can uh, speak a little bit to, you know, the the impact that the practice that Nam Myoho Renge Kyo has had on your life. Oh, wow. Well, I wasn't planning on it, but I absolutely can. I mean, for me, Namyoho Renge Kyo is, it's hard to put into words. It, it is, it is my prayer. And I was somebody that had rejected prayer for a long time. Um, but it has helped me see, oh, prayer is something that everybody does. And it's the ability to direct one's prayer that determines how, how one's prayers end up getting answered or not in a certain sense. And, and it's gifted me in a small way, uh, recognition of that reality and my ability to embrace my own power towards that end. Yeah. I mean, and, and as the historical Buddha once said, I will say no more. Why? Because what the Buddhas have achieved is the rarest and most difficult to understand law. So if you're... <laughs> How can I put this into words? Right. If, if you're ever curious or, you know, I know I talk about Buddhism a lot on Triloquy, but if you're ever curious, please do not hesitate to uh, reach out. Caesar is always excited to talk about it. I am as well, just as excited as we all are about reframing the orchestral experience. So thank you so much, uh, to Caesar uh, for uh, joining uh, Triloquy this week. You know, there are so many resources that uh, he would like to offer that I would like to offer. I'm sure I'm going to forget about some things. Uh, he did uh, ask me to make a note to make sure that everyone is aware of the documentary Black and Blue 
uh, uh, featuring uh, Louis Armstrong, you know, which is, you know, very, very impactful. And I think uh, very important. Um, and if you want to reach out to Caesar, just go over uh, to uh, his website. I'll have that in the description uh, of this opus. But we're going to go ahead and transition into the final movement this week. I mentioned, Dell that we were going to uh, talk about the Oracle theory. I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember, but uh, in The Matrix, when Neo met the Oracle for the first time, there was a little black music playing in the background, softly in the background. It was a tune by the late, great Duke Ellington called I'm Beginning to See the Light. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that mm-hmm. to get us into our fourth movement this week. not going to be the complete and utter nerd that I want to be around this film, (laughs) but just to quickly revisit for anyone who doesn't know or may have forgotten, we have the Matrix and this character, Neo, who has been platformed as the one, and he's supposed to get guidance to continue uh, his journey from uh, a woman in the film. She's uh, portrayed by a black woman uh, called the Oracle. The Oracle on first watch of the film can seem like Uh, a good character, a benevolent character, someone who's trying to help Neo, trying to help humanity. But at a closer look and really thinking about it more, you see that her role is not to help humanity, but to perpetuate a system in which humans think that she is helping them. But Ultimately, she's keeping the machine city going, keeping this idea of this this lie of the matrix in place and and really serving that purpose. I wonder if you could just briefly speak to what your reactions were to that renewed perspective on this character in the film. I mean, it flipped my understanding of the narrative on its head, honestly, and is a much more honest reading of the story, so to speak. Yeah. And really creates a depth that um, I didn't really access before because it mirrors the way that the world works so effectively. Yeah. And yeah, mm -hmm, I was just going to say the way that we don't see the effect that we actually can end up having on the world. That's what I'm saying. So in the way that, you know, that piece of music is called, I'm beginning to see the light. I've been thinking a lot about that conceptually because I feel like I'm beginning to see the light as well, especially when it comes to our field that we that we both exist in. Deeper levels of colonization are being seen as progress. So when we were laying in bed on the on our last night uh, in Detroit, following the uh, the final thing with the Sphinx conference, I was telling you how. I usually leave the conference re-energized or reaffirmed and, oh, I'm ready to get back into the work, while this time I left with a different sense of determination. I see a lot of people who were once marginalized assuming positions of power, positions of influence, and I'm not going to say any names because that's not the point of this, but I, I just feel like 
there is a role being played similar to the Oracle in arts ecosystems. We have black deans, we have black musicians, we have black executive directors. And instead of completely reshaping and reframing the way things are done, they're continuing it, maybe in a slightly different way, but ultimately a way that continues this idea of burnout culture and scarcity and so-called excellence and 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 being the best. You know, when I match that with our mm-hmm. continued historical focus on orchestral music, be it William Grant Still or Florence Price or Samuel Coleridge Taylor, there's still an aesthetic and a practice and a tradition that's being perpetuated, even though we're talking about black music. I'm finding it harder and harder to ignore the liberation that I know is possible, mm-hmm. but I'm just finding it difficult to find a way to explain it or or to just express what I'm feeling or what I'm seeing in a way that keeps people from getting in their emotions. Again, it's not about me blaming or or pointing a finger. It's about me helping people see the way in which uh, this DEI sort of era of classical music at the end of the day is a lot like the Oracle. It has the face of blackness. It has the face of of allyship, but at the end of the day, the purpose of it is to perpetuate a system that we're alleging to want to dismantle. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough, but it's hard to it's hard to argue. Um and really I feel like again, I feel like that's mirrored in so many different fields and ecosystems. I mean, it's it's out of a desire for accountability across the board for everybody. Um like all people in the world being responsible for the space we take up for the contextual power and influence that we have in each of our lives that I want to say it's not just an issue for so-called classical music. This is an issue in every corner of the world. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I have, and and you know, I used to love to dress to the so-called nines, you know, I, I wore a tie on our first date, you know, I was, I was, I was dressed. <laughs> I do not have a shirt and tie in in my closet at all whatsoever that that just does not exist anymore i refuse to adhere to sort of what i see as colonial norms if yeah. i can help it you know we're all the product of where we live we're all speaking english we're all spending the white man's dollar but mm-hmm. i think there you know are just small tiny ways in which we can just reject white supremacy reject colonial thinking mm-hmm. and inspire people to to move forward yeah. can you think of any examples in your life or in your work where you've really challenged yourself to move away from a colonial way of thinking and live more in a liberated state of mind, more more in a way that you know expresses what we really need to be working toward, and ex- mm. instead of painting a different face on the same old thing. I mean, I in in part the way that I what we were talking about earlier, uh, and how I show up for the work, and you know, still do my best, but am not going to pour in more than I than I. You're need not going to kill yourself over it. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's not to anybody's detriment either. Um, it's, it's just taking accountability and I'm accountable to myself and I'm accountable to those around me. I'm accountable to what the result of my actions are. So, I mean, there's that, but before doing this work, I'd been, I'd been working on this self project for a long time, so to speak. So when I was in middle management, it was not being just driven by the 
the quotas that I was asked to fulfill and the things I was asked to sell. In your previous work. Yeah, my previous work. I was, you know, uh, I was working, I was managing a deli at a grocer and there were certain things that were asked of my team that were not possible. And so we didn't make them happen. Not because we, you know, couldn't have, but because the well-being of my team was more important than your productivity scale. Um, you recognize the carrot on the string and understood that the point is not to get to the carrot, but to keep pressing forward and pressing forward exactly. with the idea that you're going to get it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and doing everything I can to continue to recognize where in my life I am having an expectation of myself or others that is simply born out of the expectations placed on us by our culture. Yeah. So that takes me all the way back to just the point, the the thesis statement of the Triloquy podcast. When I talk about decolonizing classical music, what I'm really getting at is the idea that that phrase, and and you know, I, I often gaslight myself because I feel like, well, I've said this so many times, and people mm-hmm. not understand, but they must not, you know, based on some of the programming that I continue to see, you know, that phrase, classical music, through white supremacist structures through colonization Mm -hmm. has been affixed to an aesthetic that represents a tiny, tiny percent of not only the human musical Mm -hmm. experience, but what people actually give a damn about in the 21st Mm -hmm. century. I celebrate the black composers of days past and will always continue to celebrate them. Mm -hmm. But we have to see that, in my opinion, as a benchmark and not as a destination. You know, the music that uh, was born from struggle, you know, I'm thinking about uh, Margaret Bonds and and George Walker and all of these incredible names who, you know, haven't been celebrated broadly until recent years. It's not that I say that we need to ignore them, put them on the shelf like we need to do some of these white men from Europe, as much as I'm saying that we have to see it as the continued journey and not the Mm. destination. If we are Mm. using that music, if we're using orchestral music by black composers as a justification of the same old aesthetic, we're operating exactly like the Oracle in the Matrix. I believe Mm. that that phrase classical music should apply to so much more. You know, I I think people laugh and maybe even shrug their shoulders when I bring up uh, hip hop and R&B or country or Americana or folk and describe that as classical music. But I really believe that. And I've Mm -hmm. I've repeated it so much to myself (laughs) that it's hard for me to go to a concert and hear a single aesthetic uh, orchestra concert anyway, hear a single aesthetic and consider anything happening on that concert progress if that's all that's being mm-hmm. represented. It's just hard for me to accept at this part of my life. It's one of my continued struggles and something that I'm going to just continue to unpack and dialogue about and try to make sense for more people <laughs> through through this mm-hmm. podcast and through all of the other work um, that I do. Mm-hmm. Any closing words? For the people. I mean, this is this is your chance. I You're mean, on the Trilogy podcast. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> decolonization requires us to abandon the idea that the world as we know it looks most anything at all the way that, well, for one, that it could have remained. But more importantly, uh, how the world that we can create together can and needs to look today and tomorrow is completely different from the expectations that we've been given from our society. A, a different world is necessary and it is possible. And we can do that together. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining me this week. Thank you for having uh, me. Babe. Rest in peace to Radar, 
thoughts and mm -hmm. prayers and warm energy to Scott Blankenship again. We love you, Scott, and we're here for you. Thanks, y'all, for listening. I'll see you again next week. Mm -hmm.